Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Moving the Needle. Today, we're talking about team-based learning with our guests, Dr. Christina Sestone and Dr. Violet Kulo. Let me introduce you to them now. Dr. Sestone is an educational psychologist who earned her doctorate from UT Austin, where she conducted research on faculty learning communities, instructional methods, and interprofessional education. She spent more than eight years in medical education, serving as the Associate Dean of Assessment and Evaluation at Drexel University. Currently, she's the Executive Director of the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore where she also serves as the program director for the health profession's education degrees. Dr. Violet Kulo earned her EDD in instructional design and technology from Lehigh University. Before joining the health profession's education faculty at UMB, Violet worked at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine for nine years, where she oversaw curriculum mapping, medical student assessment, and program evaluation for the preclinical curriculum. Her research interests include instructional design, learner engagement, and student assessment. Team-based learning is a really interesting instructional strategy, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. It was developed in the 1970s by Larry Michelson at the University of Oklahoma, who noticed that as his classes got bigger, the students seemed to get less engaged. So he designed a very robust sequence of learning events that facilitates collaborative problem solving. For those of you who might be processing a little bit of trauma around doing group work, you're going to learn how this strategy brilliantly tackles the challenges of student preparedness and social loafing through what's called this readiness assurance process. In our conversation today, you're going to hear some acronyms thrown around uh, that I want to clarify before we begin. The IRAT is the Individual Readiness Assurance Test, and the GRAT is the Group Readiness Assurance Test. You'll learn all about how these work in the flow of team-based learning during our conversation. So let's get to it. Let's start by having you uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. How did each of you land in the world of health professions education? And Christina, let's start with you. Good morning, Erin. It's great to be with you today. Um, I guess I came to health professions education a very circuitous route in that uh, most educational psychologists are trained to really go into colleges of education and uh, be traditional faculty roles, but I was fortunate enough to have um, some sort of seminal experiences where I designed healthcare interprofessional cases uh, for a group of uh, faculty, uh, excuse me, students who were in pharmacy, social work, nursing, and medicine, and I think my interest was peaked at that time uh, over a decade ago, and so at that stage, then I really thought this was something that I would stick with and be kind of the educator in the room full of clinical folks and be able to bring that perspective um, to their training trajectory. So that's really how I got involved. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Violet, how about you? Good morning, Erin. Thank you so much for chatting with, uh, with us today. So my background is in instructional design, and I was a high school teacher before I went to graduate school. And I, just like Christina, I was planning to teach in a college of education in, uh, after graduate school. 
then I happened to see a job opening at the Hopkins School of Medicine that, that caught my interest. So uh, Hopkins had just gone through a curriculum revision and they were expanding their newly formed uh, medical education office. And uh, I saw an opportunity to make an impact in, uh, in medical education. And uh, I was uh, the inaugural instructional designer at Hopkins and uh, working with faculty in active uh, designing active learning uh, environments. And uh, I was also responsible for the student uh, assessment and conducting program evaluation in the preclinical curriculum. So I realized that uh, there was a lot more need for faculty de development around course design uh, using various instructional strategies and designing different types of assessments. I, 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 I was also collaborating with faculty on conducting medical education research. So I, I enjoyed doing all these things and my desire for teaching came back. So I know I, I now became interested in teaching in a formal program in health professions education to help a, a faculty to advance their teaching uh, assessment and research skills. Oh, that's wonderful. I think those uh, secure, circuitous routes uh, are some of the, the best ways to land in interesting places. So I'm so glad that that worked out for both of you. And that's what brought us here today, which is great. So... We're, we're here today to dive into this instructional strategy called team-based learning. Um, and it, it might sound familiar, it might be familiar to many of our listeners, but uh, for those for whom it's new, uh, Christina, would you mind giving us a bird's eye view about what we're talking about when we talk about team-based learning or TBL, as we might mention it uh, here today? Sure, sure. Um, well, team-based learning has its roots really in uh, business schools and more traditional undergraduate universities. Um, and it was started to kind of get around this idea of being in a ginormous lecture hall with uh, several hundred students who would just be facing forward and, and working with the instructor in a passive way. And the instructor wanted to try something different. And so he developed team-based learning as a mechanism to engage students, even if they were sitting in a lecture hall, so that they would have interaction with one another. Um, and team-based learning is really um, defined by a sequence of phases um, that I think we'll talk about a little bit more as we go through um, this podcast. But essentially, it is a flipped classroom approach. A lot of people refer it to, to it that way. Um, and it begins with advanced preparation by students, uh, preparedness assessments, application of the content to extension exercises, and then the evaluation process. So the aim is for there to be deep development among the teams in their communication, in their social um, behaviors with one another, and their ability to give one another earnest feedback. Um, so that's kind of the big picture of, of TBL, kind of its origin. And obviously, there are a lot of articles. We didn't, we're not going to go into that today, but there's a deep literature on it, and that's really kind of the high-level summary, if you will. That's so helpful. Thank you. Uh, I think orienting ourselves in that bird's eye view uh, is is really helpful. And some folks might be listening to this, Violet, and think, uh, you know, I do that already. Sometimes I put my students into groups and, you know, I'll have them discuss uh, a topic or, you know, work on a worksheet together in a group during a class session. So, so are they doing team-based learning? How are those things different? 
Our team-based learning is a, a different from group work. So in group work, you might put a, a students in group at any time, and there's no structure, there's no defined structure. But like Christina mentioned, team-based learning has like a defined sequence. So it has, a, and it's repeated over time. But group work, you can put students in group work at any time and tell them, discuss this, or maybe turn to your peer and uh, do, do, do this, I think, pair-share. But, but for team-based learning, you have to follow the, the first you form the teams out before the class starts then you you um, you write the tests so the individual test and the group test then you do the application exercises and uh, peer evaluation so this you repeat these four elements in, in over time which is not done in group work it sounds much more formal yes it's more formal that, okay, great. Well, since you've already um, touched on that idea of a sequence already, let's let's go to that. Uh, Christina, could you walk us through the sequence of uh, of team based learning? Sort of what happens before class, during class, after kind of how how it all how it all works. Sure. So I think Violet alluded a little bit to this in that there is advanced preparation by the faculty because it is more formal than group work, which you can initiate in a classroom at any time, really. Um, but TBL would require the instructor to have materials that they want the students to focus on in advance and a mechanism for assigning that work um, what we've seen in the last year is many using uh, learning management systems like Blackboard or Canvas to place materials in advance into a, a, a site for students. They would study, read, view those materials. And then at the next stage, they would come into the classroom or meet virtually and they would engage in active learning sessions where the very start of the second phase of team-based learning is the readiness assurance process. And that consists of an individual test, which the student does on their own, and then a group test, which this, the entire group that the student is assigned to engages in collectively. So there's some consensus building around the answers to the questions on that readiness test. That allows the instructor to gauge where there are gaps in broad student understanding across the classroom. And points are usually awarded for both of these activities. Um, and then I guess next would be the um, application phase where there is perhaps clarifications first by the instructor around the pre-work that students got wrong from the readiness process that were clear, uh, that they were misunderstandings. And then the next phase would be a new activity or new exercise where the student would apply what they learned, the principles from that pre-work and that readiness process to a new scenario to extend their knowledge um, and enhance their transfer in understanding what they learned. And then from there, um, there's, you know, they can have a number of application activities. They're called 4S activities. And that, um, and Violet will correct me if I'm wrong here, they're specific. They have, tend to have a single answer. So it's, they, they work on the same problem and then they, they, they report their answers simultaneously. Correct. So there's, 
So there's no like, I got this problem and I'm going to answer it this way. And then another group has a different problem and they report out their answer. It's, it's designed where everyone works together at the same exact time on the same exact problem so that they can all come to response at the same time. And then that's where the interesting part begins. So you have may have groups that have different answers from one another. And this stimulates that discussion phase. So students may be standing up and reporting out, well, we thought it was this answer. We thought it was B. And another group says, no, it was C. And the instructor is acting as a facilitator in that instance where they have to uh, elicit from the students, well, why do you think that that is the answer? What is it about that answer that you felt compelled you to choose it? Um, and then that begins this sort of discussion, rich discussion uh, base in the class. And then finally, the final phase is there may be lecture, a brief clarification lecture by the instructor, and then a peer evaluation process, which is often by instructors um, kind of overlooked or not seemingly important, but this is like the meat of TBL, where students learn to give each other feedback, um, where there is sort of temperature taking on group process and group functioning, and it helps the professor or the facilitator to understand um, what kinds of group formation, how the group is functioning over time. Violet, would you want to add anything else to that? Yes, yes. I just wanted to reiterate the uh, importance of immediate feedback during the group test. So it's uh, important to, for students to get feedback to see where, where if, they, if they selected a, a, an incorrect answer, to see the, uh, wh wh why the answer is incorrect. And the other, uh, uh, so the students can use like a, a immediate feedback assessment a technique form where they scratch off the correct the, the answer until they get to the correct answer. And if they get the first answer, the the first time they get full credit and then they can get partial credit if they don't get the first uh, the answer the first time. Then also something else is team appeals. Students are, are can group group teams can appeal their answer if they if they can defend their uh, their the answer they selected using materi materials from the uh, readings. Yeah. So it's it sounds like the uh, this readiness assurance process where. Um, students first take an individual test uh, to to be accountable to the team that they've done their pre-work and and they're they've done as best they can to understand the material before the group activity even begins. And then the chance to take that same a test, same test as a team um, really works to mitigate that phenomenon of social loafing, right? That I think lots of students and faculty have uh, maybe some traumatic memories around. And, you know, I've, I, I, we've all been in groups where you feel like you have to carry the load for the entire group or suffer the consequences in terms of the grade. So is that is that why that was designed that way? Or are there other uh, rationales for having those readiness assurance uh, activities? So the purpose of the readiness assurance process is not only to motivate students to come to class prepared, but also to give them uh, some several experiences to give feedback to others. And also in terms of social loafing, uh, that, that can be accounted for by peer evaluation. 
So, so students provide both formative and summative feedback from their teammates about their contributions and uh, that to the team's success. So things that they can evaluate others is about uh, preparation, how their peers came prepared, their contributions to the to the to the application exercises and the and the and the GRAT, and also how they helped others uh, to contribute to, to to the team in 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 uh, general. So I'll pass it over to Christina if she has uh, uh, something to add. I think that is exactly right. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, the individual readiness assurance test allows students to get credit for what they know and what they took mm -hmm. from the pre-work. And so there's an, a percentage there of this is, this is my accountable you know, I'm accountable for this because I took my test and got 100%, for example. And so Violet was describing that as teams go through and maybe scratch off the answers in the group process, if they're using scratch offs, which are part of this system uh, in person, if they're doing that in person, then they do lose points as they, you know, if they have to attempt scratch off for the right answer three times. And so the group loses. So there's that group accountability to don't scratch off until you know, until we've reached consensus together. Um, so I think that there is that um, social connectedness that evolves or is created over time to the group. Um, and it's not to say that there aren't maladaptive groups or, or poor functioning groups, because that can happen as well. But for the most part, the system is designed to prevent social loafing to the extent possible because it has both individual accountability elements and group accountability elements with the most important piece being, as, as Violet mentioned, the peer feedback. Yeah, that's great. So if we could talk a little bit about what some of these applications might look like, uh, especially in a health professions education setting. So they, I would imagine that when they're taking these uh, readiness assurance tests, individual and group, that's pretty uh, maybe cut and dry, black and white information, right? Just, you know, do you understand the basics of, of the material that you're going to need in order to apply it? But what might some of these application activities look like? What, what might be, they be hashing out as a group to kind of come to that group consensus on the one, the one answer? Violet, you want to take that? In health professions education, they, the cases might, the activities might, might be case vignettes, like patient cases, things that students might see in real life. So maybe if it's medical students, they go to, uh, they're working with a patient and they, f they see a case. Then, so the groups might work on a differential diagnosis to diagnose the patient, or also maybe work on a treatment plan. So this works out very well in health professions because students can work on real patient cases that they'll see when they go into clinic. Yeah, I think that's a, those are great examples. And, you know, you can even um, use um, application exercises that include psychosocial or ethical, clinical ethical dilemmas as well, um, because they can be really ripe for uh, good conversation and debate within, within the groups. Yeah. So they, they would be reading a case and there would be some details presented or some contextual information. And then maybe the question would be something like, uh, what is the best option 
out of these four because at the end of the day it's still the it's still a, a forced choice that the students are being asked to make in the application activity is that right Yes, that's correct. So if, uh, remember, all the f the groups have to have, to have the, they are working on the same pro problem and the problem has a specific answer. So they, if, if it's a differential diagnosis, they, ha they work through the, the patient case and they have to come to a specific answer of the diagnosis. So this must be interesting from a faculty member's point of view during the actual uh, implementation of the class session. The class probably looks very different than what some faculty might be typically used to uh, seeing or facilitating during class time. So can you talk us uh, through a little bit about what it might look like from the outside and what sort of feelings might come up for a faculty member who is doing this for the first time? Christina, you want to? Walk us through that. Sure, sure. Um, so Violet has been facilitating um, an interprofessional team-based learning workshop for faculty at UMB. Uh, this past, I guess, six months, we've had um, two sessions and we'll have another one coming up. And in those um, workshops, we get a lot of questions from faculty about what the experience is really like. And I think there's a tend towards perfectionism. Like I have to touch on every, you know, design this perfectly for it to work. Um, and I think what a new faculty member might encounter in those that we've spoken to is a little bit more on the sort of the logistical planning of like, how does this go? How does, what does this look like in the classroom or lecture hall if that's the space that's being used? And so really thinking through the steps that you're going to um, engage in when you're in that setup or that classroom setting. And then I think the second piece is that the assessments themselves have to be built. So a lot of times you have the lecture content, you have the subject matter, you know what the reading is, your slide decks are probably already prepared for a traditional lecture. So it's more of how do I change things up in terms of the order, the logistics, and then um, if, no, if there are no assessments available around the content, developing the assessments. Violet, would you say, I mean, that's what I think we heard in some of the workshops um, and post-workshop for those who have been interested in, in integrating this into their teaching. Yes, absolutely. That, that's correct. So it's mostly the, around the logistics. That's where a lot of the questions come, like doing, if the faculty member is doing it alone in a large class for the first time, how do I do this? Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And also I can I can imagine when I well, as an instructor when I first started using active learning techniques, I had to remind myself that I was still teaching even though I may be in a quiet moment and the students are doing a lot of the work and there were moments where it just felt a little strange. Like if somebody walked in right now and saw me just kind of walking around and and checking on students and the students really doing the bulk of the work, will they still think that I'm teaching? Have you come across this uh, with TBL? Yes, I think that is a really important observation, Erin, that faculty do feel a little bit um, less like the sage on the stage, which is a, a common phrase that we hear, and a little bit more of a facilitator on the side or a guide on the side. But that is in 
intentional. That is the purpose of the instructor because just coming in and not really seeing where people's prior knowledge is on a subject um, may cause inadvertent the instructor to inadvertently overlook people who don't have a good grasp of the material. And for those who do have a good grasp of the material, perhaps they become bored. And so this uh, calibration as facilitator helps allow students to work with one another and to provide some of that scaffolding and differences in prior knowledge, but then also for them to, for the faculty to really um, hear the students verbalize what they don't understand. Um, And we know from the research evidence that things like self-explanation, assessment and retrieval practice in the IRAT process or the GRAT process, the readiness process, um, are really critical for effective learning. That's great. So why do each of you think this is um, so particularly useful, this strategy is so useful in health professions? You said it started in the business world um, and that it started primarily in undergraduates. So in your experience working with health professions, educators, what have they told you about um, its applicability, its usefulness? How, how is it being received in this world of health professions? Violet, you want to start? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. So it's I in health professions, it's being received well because it, it uh, mimics what happens in real life. They interprofessional teams so you health professions work together in interprofessional teams in in the in their uh, clinics in their in their work experiences so it that's and then they also working on patient cases and clinical vignettes that's how it also makes it uh, work well in health professions that's great christina anything you'd want to add on that yeah i think i'd also add about um giving and receiving feedback And that's why, so I hate to harp on the peer evaluation piece, but I think that sometimes instructors feel like it's not necessary. And even if you're giving it a small weight in the overall course grade, if you're using TBL, I think it's really important to highlight that sometimes students at the early stage of their clinical or health professions training may not be comfortable giving and receiving feedback. And this starts that practice, um, I think, or helps them in that practice. And yes, it may be lower stakes, which is good um, because there's no sort of massive implication like there would be in a summative kind of environment. Um, It's a very much a formative activity. Um, So I think that peer evaluation helps them give feedback to one another and learn about Um, being comfortable with that process, which, as we know, is very important in health professions throughout their careers, whether they are instructors or learners. Yeah. And it it seems like since this is a strategy that in a course is repeated over time, students could really see improvement in, you know, how they're giving feedback or, or how they're communicating with their peers. So it's not just a one and done cycle. Uh, they really get the chance to experience that again. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Well, that's great. Well, we're really excited uh, to have the chance to talk about this. Um, For those of you who are interested in learning more about TBL, I would um, recommend you visit the 
Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning website, uh, umaryland.edu slash FCTL. And there are a lot of resources and references about TBL uh, that you can find there. But before we go, we like to ask all of our guests to share with us something that they are particularly excited about in the world of education. It does not have to be TBL specific. Um, just is there something uh, on the horizon in the world of education that you think could really move the needle uh, with respect to teaching and learning? Violet, do you want to start? Yes, thank you. Uh, so this, I'm really excited about uh, HyFlex. This is not really a new thing per se, but uh, uh, the HyFlex high co course model. But in in the light of what what we're going what we've gone through for the for the last one and one and a half years with the pandemic and uh, uh, you know instructors and students going uh, having to go to remote learning, I see that HyFlex course mod model might be implemented more in classrooms. This is where students have uh, you have students take part in uh, in online and also face-to-face uh, -face classroom. So students are given that flexibility to either take 100% of class, classes online or either 100% in or in person or or a, a, a mixture of both. So I, th I think that, that that we'll see that. We, and also with the social distancing that uh, that we have, you know, we have to, uh, classrooms are, are required to do now, uh, maybe HyFlex uh, course model might might be, be used heavily in future. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, all the ways that COVID is, uh, you know, disrupting things and moving us forward and, and enhancing our creativity. That's great. So high flex for you. Christina, what about you? What are you excited about? <laughs> I think I'm, what I'm really excited about, and I think what we've been talking about at the university system level, is the shift towards the high flex, as Violet mentioned, but at the sort of the root and the foundation of that is this move towards student centeredness in learning, which is in going to increase accessibility. It's going to map to the changing learner demographics that we see of our applicants and our matriculants. And so I feel like the high flex is a wonderful example of how that uh, student-centeredness is actualized or operationalized in the educational space. And so mm -hmm. that's what's exciting to me is that we're, we're thinking about things that are putting the learner at the center of what their higher education graduate and professional training experience is really about. It's about them and their development on this professional trajectory. Um, so I think that's what I'm really excited about and how that can, how this centeredness towards the student can open up doors for people um, to enter a space that maybe they they didn't think about before. Yeah, that's so, that's so great. Well, I just consider myself so lucky to be able to work with both of you. And I'm, I'm so glad uh, that all of our roots brought us here together in this field uh, and in this hour here today. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Erin. This has been a great chat. Thank you. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash FCTL to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.